welcome everyone to our study, actually the conclusion of our study to 2 Kings. Um, if anyone needs some notes, there still would be a couple of copies upstairs. Um, so, uh, and I think there's some back on that little podium there in the back. Wow, we've, we've, uh, we've been going through Kings for two years now, First and Second Kings. A lot has happened. I try to think about when you're preaching on a conclusion, you know, you want to get all of the lessons that you ever learned from it and you want to bring it, but we just can't do that because I'd have to spend another two years doing that. But it's very interesting uh, as we take a look at this, what this last part is going to be about in Second Kings is Jehoiachin, and we'll go over who he was, Jehoiachin is going to be released from prison, but still in Babylon, and he will get rid of his prison clothes, and he will eat his meals with the king. That's how it ends, Second Kings. Well, there is a little bit more involved if we go to Second Chronicles, and if we also go to Jeremiah. But as far as the review, where are we? Well, you remember, Jerusalem fell. Not only was the northern kingdom taken into captivity in 722, but now in 586, Judah, after watching what happened with the northern kingdom, Watching what happened in two deportations from Judah by Nebuchadnezzar still rebelled till the third and final deportation in 586. Burned and destroyed Jerusalem, took the captives to Babylon, but it wasn't over. Those who were too poor, too weak to go, or Nebuchadnezzar didn't want them, he only took the best of the best, took all of the all of the treasures out of the, the temple. They were under the tutelage of Johanan. And Johanan says, we're going to Egypt to our ally rather than submit to Nebuchadnezzar, which God had said it from the very beginning, you need to submit to Nebuchadnezzar because he's my instrument right now bringing judgment on all these nations. But they, they were going to go to Egypt. And we, we find out that right before they go, Johanan asks Jeremiah, what should we do? Should we stay or should we go? And of course, Jeremiah had already told them that they should stay. But Jeremiah goes before the Lord. And before he does that, they said, whatever you say, whether it's pleasant or not, we will follow you. Well, he comes back and says exactly what he's always said. And I'm going to re reiterate this. So sometimes you hear of people saying that Jeremiah is the baby crier prophet. Not even close. He weeps. He weeps for the judgment that's coming upon Judah. But when it comes to his prophecies, he never veered. He was never afraid to tell them opposite 
of what they wanted to hear because it was the truth from the Lord. And here's another example. He said, don't go. You cannot go. And they say, we don't care. We're going anyway. Well, they take the remnant that was there in Jerusalem, the leftovers, and they also take Jeremiah with them, and they go to Egypt. And God said, look, I am going to destroy or going to punish Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar's going to do that. And if you're there, the remnant, you're going to be punished as well. And they said, we don't care. Well, that's all that we really see then from the book of 2 Kings. In fact, all that I just told you there was one verse in 2 Kings. Remember how we filled it in from the book of Jeremiah? Now we're back to 2 Kings, and I invite you to turn to chapter 25. And we want to look at verses 27 through 30. But we also want to look at 2 Chronicles, and Jeremiah is also involved in this as well. Second Kings chapter 25, verses 27 through 30. So after, after they went to Egypt and all of this had gone, here's the ending. Now it came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he became king, released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. He didn't send him back to Jerusalem, but he released him from prison there in, in Babylon. And he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the throne of the kings who were with him in Babylon. Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes and had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you and we do thank you for your word. And maybe the first cursory reading would be, why in the world this doesn't even seem to, it's a true event, but it doesn't seem to have to do with much of what's been going on, but it does. Father, I pray as we conclude Second Kings, I pray, Father, that some of those major things that we learned come forth. I pray, Father, that we ourselves, uh, we think about ourselves in our own spiritual lives, that, Lord, we, we won't falter like so many of the kings did, and that we will bring a heritage, Lord, a spiritual heritage, unlike so many of the kings. So, Father, we'll just thank you now for what you've taught us and what you will teach us, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we made it, the conclusion to Kings. Well, I want to begin with verse 27, and there really is a little bit there that we need to discuss, uh, especially if we don't quite remember who Jehoiachin was, although he was only the second of the last king, Zedekiah being the last. And so as we take a look at this, 
It says, now it came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah. So as we're looking at who he is and, and how old he is, you remember he was 18 when he was taken into captivity. And now some 37 years later, he's 55 years old. In the 12th month of the 27th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, so it's not Nebuchadnezzar anymore. A lot happened in 37 years. In the year that he became king, he released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. So he was in prison for 37 years. I don't know, I don't know what kind of conditions it was. Usually when we think of ancient prisons, the conditions were horrible. If you died, you just made room for the next person that they were going to throw in. But let's do a little bit of a review on Jehoiachin, because it has been a while since we've talked about him. So there were five of the last kings. You remember them? It was Josiah, who was the good king. We spent a lot of time about with him because there was a lot written about him, and it was like a breath of fresh air. Finally, one of the kings serves the Lord. And then four more kings after him, and it's just downhill. We have Jehoahaz, who was one of his sons. And then we have Jehoiakim, who was another one of his sons. And then his son, Jehoiakim's son, becomes king, Jehoiachin. And then after him, Zedekiah. And by the way, in all of them, it said the infamous words, he did evil in the sight of the Lord like his forefathers. That's where we are. No wonder God came through and, and followed through with his warning. Now, just in case you forgot, Jehoiachin is also Jeconiah. And Jeconiah is also Kaniah, depending on who's writing it or whether it's Second Chronicles. And th those names may ring a bell. Uh, for one thing, it's in the genealogy of, of Christ. But we'll talk about that in just a moment. He reigned for three months. That's all. Three months. And in three months' time, it said he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And at the end of the three months... Nebuchadnezzar came in and sieged Jerusalem. Now, this isn't the end. Sieged Jerusalem and took him, treasures, and a whole bunch of others with him. And we, at that point, we talked about Jeconiah's curse. You remember how it said that the signet ring would be taken off of him, even though he was one of the uh, people in the lineage to Christ, well, I don't want to go into all of that again, but basically I believe it boils down to that was Matthew's lineage, not Mary's lineage, who also goes back to David, and it, it proves that he couldn't be king according to Joseph's line if he were Joseph's biological son, but that's all right. He was also by Mary's lineage as well. Anyway, let's move on. Nebuchadnezzar then came back after Zedekiah, and Zedekiah was there as king for quite a while. Nebuchadnezzar uh, had had enough. 
There was a little rebellion going on, conspiracy with, with Zedekiah. He comes against Jerusalem. If you remember what happens, he takes Zedekiah. And what happened with Zedekiah? The last king takes him back to Babylon with his sons. He gouges out the eyes of Zedekiah, but not before watching all of his sons die. So the last picture that he will ever see in his mind is his sons being killed. Well, let's just take a look at something here. Let me put this all together. Maybe this will help us. Again, the, one of the points I want to make is there were three deportations to Judah. Nebuchadnezzar came three times. Why didn't they learn after the first? Why didn't they learn after the second? And here we have what, what I'm going to call the latter half of the history of kings. So in 722, the northern kingdom, they went. Uh, evil was rampant in the northern kingdom. Uh, the southern kingdom wasn't far behind. And they were taken into Assyrian captivity. But by the time we get into the final uh, destruction of Jerusalem, Assyria is no more, and Babylon is in complete control. But you'll notice, then, it was quite some time then, 640 to 609 was the reign of Josiah. It was great. His son, Jehoahaz, one year. And then, his other son, a few years, 609 to 598. And it was at that time that we have the first deportation. That was told to us in Daniel. Okay? And Daniel goes. The whole story of Daniel, the whole events of Daniel happened right here at this time. And, and Daniel remains in Babylon his entire life. And then several years later, we have the reign of Jehoiachin. So there was one deportation so far. Three months, Jehoiachin is there, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, takes him, more spoils, more treasuries from the temple, more people. And remember, each time he went, he took the best people. Can you help my kingdom? If you can, you, you, you can come. If you can't, I will kill you. All right, it's as simple as that. That's the second deportation, and that is talked about in 2 Kings. Then we have the reign of Zedekiah from 597 to 586, quite a lengthy, quite a lengthy uh, reign. But then in chapter 25, we see Judah's final deportation. That's it. And even if you remember, one of the commanders comes up to Jeremiah, who already knows this, says to Jeremiah, the reason this happened to you was because you, because Judah did not obey the voice of the Lord. Wow. So this is what we have. Well, now we move ahead a little bit. And we're moving ahead now to Evil Merodach. He releases, after 37 years, he releases Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah, or Kaniah. He releases him from prison. Well, I want to talk a little bit about him. We talked about Nebuchadnezzar when he was in control. Well, let's talk uh, about Evil Merodach. Well, uh, first of all, he was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar died in 562. Now, some people suspect that Nebuchadnezzar 
never wanted this son, his oldest son, evil Merodach, to become the king that succeeds him. But it's said that he dies before he could change that. And one of the reasons is, is because his son was guilty of conspiracy. There was a time when Nebuchadnezzar was away and the aristocracy was trying to make his oldest son king and people were saying that he was king. So he imprisoned his son for a time. He's now in charge. He now is the one. His name, uh, Evil Merodach, uh, means the man of Marduk. Marduk is one of the gods that they worship. And why did he release Jehoiachin? Well, some have said that maybe Jeconiah or Jehoiachin, same guy, in all that time he repented to the Lord and the Lord had mercy. Maybe. Scripture doesn't say that. You know, who knows? Who knows with these kings? I mean, many of them were evil all the way, no matter what happened. Uh, that's one view. Another view is that he did it to gain favor with the Jews. Possibility of political reasons. The king released Jehoiachin from his imprisonment and gave him special privileges. That's, that's possibility in kind of the times of the day and the evilness of the day. That's not really all that uh, difficult. Now, he only reigned for two years, from 562 to 560. It was short-lived because he was assassinated by his brother-in-law, supposedly. So, uh, yeah, that's how it was. They would steal and hoodwink and scam and kill whatever they could to get into uh, kingship. And then the people that they did it to or the relatives that they did it to, they always came back. Now, verse 28, it says, And he spoke kindly to him. So this is evil Merodach speaking kindly to Jehoiachin and set his throne above the throne of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So evidently they became friends. They were congenial. They, they talked. He was friendly with him. He spoke kindly to him. And then he restored him to... I'm not going to say his throne because he's not back in Jerusalem, but to a throne. He established him right there in Babylon to a throne. But of course, evil Merodach was the king over all. I, I believe it was probably a token throne. Look what good I'm doing. I'm trying to win the favor of the Jewish people, if that's the case. Also, too, um, I wouldn't be surprised if Jehoiachin was an overseer maybe of disputes or problems or situations with the Jewish people. They always needed an overseer of some, some sort. And then notice, if you will, it says that it's above the thrones of the kings who were there with him. Who are they? Captives, I think. I think they were captives. So Nebuchadnezzar, when he was on the spree and he was taking these countries and these nations I mean, he took captives from all of them. And he was kind enough in most cases not to kill the king. But there they had them in prison. And now he, he uh, at some point, they, they were on thrones. And now this is what happened to Jehoiachin. He got to be on a throne. But it says that his throne was above these other kings. 
verse 29. Very interesting verse. One might just assume it anyway, but it's interesting when Scripture points it out. Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes. Now, it doesn't say that he had royal clothes, but we might assume that. He had better clothes than prison clothes. Uh, they weren't orange, and they didn't have stripes anyway. But um, probably, I mean, if he was set on the throne and he was a king, um, you know, a token king, probably had royal clothes. Very, very interesting. I think we could see some parallels, I think, uh, which I'll mention at the very end. And he takes his meals with the king and had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. So there is mercy that's shown to Jehoiachin, and there is this kind of, well, I'm not going to say the word conversion, but I'm going to say there is this change, outward change anyway. And then in verse 30, we see this, and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. So that, that's kind of amazing. That's kind of amazing that he was giving him some sort of money, daily money, perhaps. It, it seems like it was personal expenditures. It doesn't seem like it was given money to him that he was giving to the Jews, but perhaps Joachim Perhaps Joachim was a voice for the Jewish people. And we could see why then maybe God had mercy on him so that there would be a spokesman for the Jewish people. However, that, that was 37 years without a spokesman. And of course, by this time, what did these Jewish captives do? They settled in. In fact, in one of Jeremiah's prophecies, he told them to settle in, to do as great a job as they could do in growing and possessing land and, and, and wealth uh, because in God's mind, they're going back to Jerusalem someday. So this is what they were doing. That's 37 years. Now, we do find, uh, just, just in case, you know, you talk to atheists or agnostics who say these things aren't true in the Bible. The book of Kings, right along, has always said how long the king was a king and who was next. And even history verifies all this. There was documentation. Uh, you remember we found, we didn't find, but we found out that they found um, in Lachish, they found uh, all of the writing on one of these uh, potteries and, and gave all of the statistics of the coming of the Jerusalem uh, uh, fall. So all of this is there, but, but I noticed there was one here, confirmation of this historical notice of Je Jehoiachin came with the discovery of ration tablets from the reign of Nabitus, listing among the recipients, Yaukin, king of the land of Yahud, Judah. Jehoiachin was considered the rightful king of Judah, even by the Chaldeans. So we see that. Well, we're done, but of course we're not done. The next point that I want to talk about is Judah's epitaph and future. 
You know that. You saw that coming. Even when God poured out his worst prophecies through Jeremiah, how he was going to remove Judah, who would not listen to him. No one would be in Jerusalem. We saw the famine and pestilence and the sword, the the trilogy of, of God's judgment. He also came back and said, but I will gather you and bring you back. In fact, it's there in Jeremiah 31, in the midst of this, when the new covenant is given as a prophecy. He always, God has always given hope to Jerusalem, no matter, to Judah, no matter how much he punished them. And of course, that's why we say this is Judah's epitaph as well as future. Turn with me now to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. And some of this is redundant, but so was God's warnings. They were redundant, and we're going to find that here in verses 15 through 16. This is the epitaph, I believe. The Lord, is verse 15, chapter 36, Second Chronicles. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again, by his messengers, that would be the prophets, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. That's where his presence was at the moment in the Ark of the Covenant, there in the Holy of Holies, in the temple that Solomon built, which has now been destroyed. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, And scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. How'd you like to have that on your epitaph? And you remember, we talked about the time when Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, not weeping because he was scared or a crybaby, but weeping because his heart was broken of the judgment coming upon God's people. And he prayed to the Lord and the Lord said, don't even pray. I'm done. I'm done. Don't even pray, Jeremiah. I don't want to hear it. Wow. Well, then we see this judgment in verses 17 through 19. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, which is the same as the Babylonians, and we're talking about King Nebuchadnezzar, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. And that's the Lord gave them into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And God was saying that the whole time. God said, don't fight Nebuchadnezzar. Submit to Nebuchadnezzar. Surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. And of course, they wouldn't. And so those who resisted died. Those who didn't, They were taken as captives. Some, the poorest, the weakest, they were left. They were the remnant. They were the ones that went to Egypt. It says, all the articles of the house of God, great and small, 
and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Now remember that. Now we've already talked about that, but remember it again because that's we're going to see this work out. Verse 19, then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Why? So that they never can come back. Or if they do come back, it will take forever to rebuild and they will never be a strong nation to go against Babylon at that time. That's the whole idea of that. And then verse 20. Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. All right, so now let me say this again. When, when we were studying the book of Kings, both first and second, and God was saying this, he was warning them the whole time. That was through many generations, and so his warnings were a long time. But that wasn't even all of his warnings. He warned them from the very beginning when they became his people. And we see it even as far back as Deuteronomy, him warning them, saying, this is one of the curses. If you will not follow me, I will take you out of the land that I gave you. I will give it to another, and I will take you to a foreign country who speaks in a foreign tongue. So verse 20, this was fulfilled. And this has all come about. Now, again, we're going to take a look at some of these things. We're going to go back, but I kind of want to move through this here. There's an interesting verse in verse 21. He carried them away into captivity to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Now watch this. Until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. All right, this is very interesting. Okay, what is it talking about? Is is the word of the prophecy through Jeremiah, again, and again, let me just emphasize, if, if we don't understand what a prophet is, go back into the Old Testament. Go back to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord. It came from him and it was the truth. And, and he was a chosen vessel. There's no such thing as a self-appointed prophet. There never was in the Old Testament. And, and uh, they were the spokesmen for God. Now, the word of the Lord that we're talking about here is not that they were going to be judged, although that's part of it, but this is the part where he prophesied they will be in captivity for 70 years. And here's where a lot of it starts to come together. But he, he said 70 years. In fact, keep your finger there in 2 Chronicles and turn to Jeremiah 25. 11 and 12, or I'll just read it to you. But in Jeremiah chapter 25, it said, This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. 
Then it will be when 70 years are completed, here we go, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord. For their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, I will make it an everlasting desolation. Let's just go back. Just in case we're struggling with why is it that Nebuchadnezzar, who's a pagan man, why is it that he's God's instrument? Because God rules all authorities and they accomplish his purposes. And there were many nations who sinned against the Lord and he was using Nebuchadnezzar to punish them. The problem was that Judah was one of them. His own people. And so that's why he came against Judah. But he went going to all these others. But everyone says, but wait, it's not fair. They're evil. Oh, but they're getting theirs too. They're getting theirs too. God leaves no stone unturned. Now, let's move to this 70 years. So when he talks about the Sabbath, the Sabbath that he's talking about is that in every seventh year, they were to have a Sabbath where the land is fallow. They let it go for a year. They hadn't done that. In a long, long time. In fact, specifically, they hadn't done it in 490 years. J. Vernon McGee writes, Secondly, for 490 years, Israel had not observed the sabbatic years. They had been breaking God's law of the land, which he had given them even before they set foot upon it. Leviticus 25. Because of their greed, they had not allowed the land to enjoy its Sabbath, its rest. In other words, they had not allowed it to remain fallow every seventh year as God has commanded. They thought they had gotten away with it. For 490 years, they had been doing it. And then God said, I'll put you out of the land for 70 years so the land can enjoy It's Sabbaths, meaning those Sabbaths that you did not allow it to have. That is the reason the captivity lasted for 70 years. This is quite remarkable. For every year that they did not institute a Sabbath year, they had to remain in captivity. So 490 divided by 7 equals 70. So, I mean, they were, they were punished because of their sin, because they did not follow the Lord. But here the Lord is using this violation of these sabbatic years to say, well, if you're not going to obey me, even down to the land law, then I'm going to do it myself. So you're going to be in there for 70 years. And that's what we read that Jeremiah said. You remember Jeremiah said you're going to be there for 70 years. Daniel, wanting to know how long is it going to be. He says in the book of Daniel, he talks about Jeremiah saying 70 years. And then he wanted to know. Well, at this point, let's just take a look at this chart. Hopefully you can see it. So here's here's an interesting chart where we see Nebuchadnezzar comes on the scene at 605, um, and then 
Uh, he dies in 562. But in 605, notice it says Daniel active in Babylonia, Babylonian government. Okay, I might have put a little different title on that, but that's fine. Now in the second deportation, 593, guess what? Ezekiel went. So when Ezekiel writes, he's in Babylon. In 605, Jehoiakim was the king, but in 597, Jehoiachin, three months, 597, he was deported to Babylon. And then Zedekiah, in 586, Jerusalem was destroyed. Then 37 years later, in the year 560 or 562, somewhere in there, this Evel Merodach, that's his Hebrew name, and it's just, it's very interesting when we transliterate it, or Amel Marduk, when he reigns, he releases Jehoiachin. Now, let's go back to Second Chronicles. 70 years. What about the 70 years? And this is 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles is really completing the whole story of kings. These two verses are phenomenal. After he tells why you're going to be there for 70 years, it says, Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people May the Lord his God be with them and let him go up. Here, Second Chronicles closes with the actual future. So we saw uh, earlier the epitaph, but now here is the future of what's going to happen. But I, I want to show you something because we're not quite done. Look at this chart. So in 539, Babylon falls to Cyrus. Remember, there was that prophecy that Babylon was going to get theirs. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had died long before this, but it was still going to happen. And the, the Persians take over Babylon. By the way, at this time, if you're thinking of Daniel and you're thinking of the vision of the statue that Daniel had, these are these two nations. Gold was Babylon, and then silver was Persia. And then there's more nations, but we won't go down that road at this point. And so here we have Babylon gets their judgment from God. And Cyrus the king 
is the one who releases him, and he's now an instrument of the Lord, just like Nebuchadnezzar was. And we don't know and doubt it very much that, that uh, Cyrus was anything more than a pagan king. But back to him in just a second. But notice we have there Daniel chapter 5. Do you know what happened in Daniel chapter 5? That was the writing on the wall. And we see Belshazzar, the king, and one night he's partying. I mean, he's the king of Babylon. Let's party. And he gets this wild idea. Hey, let's drink our wine out of the utensils that came from the Jewish temple. And so they bring out these cups and they're pouring the wine and whatever else it is. They're pouring in there. They're getting drunk. And all of a sudden, the writing on the wall, a finger, the writing on the wall. And Belshazzar asked Daniel to come and interpret it. And it's very interesting because what happens, Daniel does interpret. It says, you have been weighed and measured and you are found wanting and your kingdom is about to be taken from you. And this night, you will die and it will be taken from you. That was the fall of Babylon. So we see Jeremiah, we see Daniel, we see First and Second Kings. I mean, it fits together like a hand in a glove. This is incredible. And then Cyrus, he allows the, he allows the captives to go back to Jerusalem. This is amazing. By the way, by the way, uh, turn with me or just listen to Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. You want to know how this is all working together? And there's a rumor out that after I do a, a, an intermission study, I may go back to the book of Ezra and continue. Because Ezra begins at the end in, uh, of, of 2 Kings and Chronicles. And it says, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. There you go. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah." Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Interesting, he doesn't say he is the God of everything, the God of the earth. But he just says Jerusalem. Now, a couple of thoughts here. Uh, the first one is, I just want to read this. Uh, this. They found this on what was called a, the Cyrus Cylinder. So they did keep pretty good court records. And you remember throughout the book of First and Second Kings, there was a reference to these records. Now it almost made us think about, um, it, was, it was the book of Kings um, or Chronicles. It mentions that. But in that case, it wasn't talking about the biblical book because in many cases, when we would go to Second Chronicles, there wasn't anything in there. This was talking about the chronicles that were legal and that were done administratively. And so 
this, this was really uh, very common, and here they found one called the, the uh, Cyrus Cylinder. In October 539, Babylon fell to Cyrus, king of Persia, as he overthrew Nebuchadnezzar and his son Belshazzar, who were its last native rulers, Daniel 5. Cyrus's policy of cooperating with local religions and of encouraging the return of exiles has received explicit archaeological confirmation from the inscriptions of the king himself found on the Cyrus cylinder. Now, one of the things that we have seen once in a while in the book of Kings was somebody coming forward saying, the Lord has sent me or I am the Lord's instrument. And it kind of gives you a, a little bit of a problem. How could a pagan say this? How could, how could a pagan even find this out? And here we find out that, that uh, Cyrus says, I am the Lord's handyman. I'm the Lord's instrument. And I'm bringing these things about. Why did he say that? How did he know? Well, let me read this. Babylon fell to the armies of Cyrus in 539. The Persian was welcomed in the city as a liberator. The scripture states that Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus to issue a proclamation which allowed the Jews to return to their homeland. How Yahweh stirred up Cyrus is not stated. Josephus states that the Jews showed him the prophecies of Isaiah 44, which named Cyrus as the one who would liberate the Jews. Now let's insert Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. And again, many of these prophets were contemporaries, maybe some older, some younger, but I mean, if you look at them in the chart, it touches in the same area. Isaiah Chapter 44, verse 28. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Next verse, chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed whom I have taken by the right hand. Why? To subdue nations before him, Babylon being one of them, and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. And so this is a reference to uh, Cyrus allowing the people to go back. But isn't it interesting? And I thought that was very interesting that, that here we see that um, Josephus, and it's not inspired. Josephus is not an, an inspired writer, but it might be historically correct that the Jews were telling Cyrus, you're the one. It even gives your name. Did you notice the name in Isaiah? You're the Cyrus. And it stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Well, we've come to some concluding thoughts then. 
And I just, I want to read them. I, I, I thought some of these were good. Two of them are going to re- refer back to Jehoiachin. Why that ending? Because it's an ending of hope. It's a symbol. It happened, but it's an analogy of that the people of Israel, after 70 years, will be returned. That they will know that this will go on. That the people will go on. And that Jerusalem will go on. And in their hope that the Davidic covenant, someone will sit on the throne of David and rule and reign. We're not giving that up. Especially when we see some hope. And the idea of Jehoiachin being released, putting on new clothes, having fellowship with the king, no longer a captive, but now free, able to have fellowship with the king and even be blessed by the things that the king has given. One writes this, Thus the final curtain falls on the drama of the divided monarchy. What had been a note of dark despair is illuminated by the light of God's gracious concern for his own. And we've seen that through the book of Kings. We've seen that in all of the prophets, including and especially Jeremiah. Although God's people had been judged as they must, yet God would be with them even in the midst of their sentence. Jehoiachin's release and renewed enjoyment of life thus stands as a harbinger of the further release and return of all the nations in accordance with God's promises, Jeremiah and Lamentations. The spiritually minded believers perhaps would see in this incident an assurance of God's greater redemption from bondage of those who look forward to him who gives release and eternal refreshment to all who love his appearing. So definitely sees that as a spiritual analogy. And when I first read that, I thought, you know, I don't think so. And now that I've kind of put it all together, it's like, yeah, I do see that. And that's what he's been doing all along. Another one. This good word from the king of Babylon to the surviving representative of the house of David served as a concluding reminder of God's good word to David. Through the curse of exile, the dynasty of David had survived. There was still hope that God's good word to David concerning the seed who will build God's temple and establish God's eternal kingdom would be fulfilled. Of course, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, the Davidic covenant. Now we brought Samuel into it. The book of 2 Kings opened with Elijah being carried away to heaven. The destination of all those faithful to God. The book ends with Israel and then Judah being carried away to pagan lands as a result of failing to be faithful to God. One more comment. 
Jeremiah recorded Jehoiachin's release in 539. The Jewish people could keep the hope of the Davidic covenant not only through Jehoiachin's release, but also in the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy when Cyrus, the Lord's instrument, allowed them to return to Jerusalem. So he's giving them hope. And you wonder, why do the Jewish people, why are they so tenacious? Why won't they go away? Why won't they give up? Part of the reason is the promises that God has given them. The other part is that God will not allow them to go completely. It's a partial hardening is what it's called in the book of Romans because he is going to fulfill his promises including the Davidic covenant at the second coming of Christ, at the restoration of Israel, and going into the millennial kingdom. But I want to uh, make one application when I could make thousands. Um, and, and, and some of them would have been, you know, one of the things we tried to do was we tried to see some pattern. Because you would have an evil, evil king. Evil, evil means evil in the beginning, evil in the end. You'd have an evil, evil king. And you'd see that for a while. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, would come a good, good king. And you're thinking, here we go. This is going to be good. And then the next king could be evil, evil. Or he could be good, evil. Okay? Could even be like that. Or there have been some, one in particular, that was evil, good. But there was no rhyme or reason that we could do it. Basically, the truth of the matter is, is we see the sinful nature. The reality is, is that unless the Lord works in their heart, there will be no change. And there really isn't any way that you can figure out that. You can't figure out who's going to come to Christ and who's not. There's no, no sign on their head that says the elect. And excuse me, I'd like to talk with you for a moment. You're one of the elect. We don't know that. But we, we saw that there was no really rhyme or reason. Somebody, uh, somebody gave an idea that perhaps uh, the mothers were part of it. Well, that could be, except we kind of see some of the same thing, because sometimes the mothers were evil, but the sons were good and put the mother out. Remember that? Sometimes the mothers were evil, and of course the son was evil as well. And, and you remember, again, we go through all of that in the book of First and Second Kings, and if it wasn't for the highlight of Elijah and Elisha, you know, it, it, it would be just the same redundancy. But nevertheless, whatever Elijah said, they didn't obey. Whatever Elisha said, they didn't obey. And then, of course, my favorite, Micaiah. Uh, so Micaiah was the one when Ahab said, we, we got... Well, actually, somebody was visiting Ahab, and, and uh, I think it was Ahab, I'm not sure, but it was one of the kings. There, there were 40 kings, and uh, there were 20 on each side, and, and it just uh, does uh, escape me. Anyway, the, the person said, well, why don't we go ahead and, and ask one of the prophets? Good idea. But he had already asked the prophets of his own, and they all told him what he wanted to hear. You're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. 
And, and so this other person says, well, maybe we should bring in one of, you know, another prophet. I mean, you know, one of the Lord's prophets. So here comes Micaiah. And evidently, this has been going on before because the king said, I don't like him because he never tells me what I want to hear. He always, he always uh, prophesies bad things. So they asked ask Micaiah, because all, all of this guy's own prophets were saying, everything is fine. So he asked Micaiah. Micaiah, what is he? Micaiah says, hey, don't worry. Everything's going to be fine. He says, no, I want you to tell me the truth. He says, okay, it's going to be very bad. And he, right away he goes, you see, you see, he always talks against me. But I love that irony in the beginning. Yeah, you're right. I mean, all the, hey, you've got your prophets. You're going to be fine. You don't need me. And he must have said it in such a way that it was godly sarcasm that the, the king said, tell me the truth. You're playing with me. And he did. So we, we had some of that through the book of First Kings. And of course, a major ministry of Elijah, major ministry of um, Elisha. We, we have all of those. And by the way, uh, one of the main reasons why I started this study was that when I was over in Israel, how could you not hear the history of all these kings? Now, there are certainly some kings that you do remember. You know about Ahab. You can keep that one in your mind. And, and some Josiah, you can keep that one. Maybe Manasseh, because he was the king that broke the camel's back. You remember? That's when God said, that's it. We're done. No more. Jeremiah, don't even pray. Okay, that was Manasseh. But some of these other kings I wasn't totally familiar with, and I thought, I'm going to get familiar with them. And, of course, what's interesting is being over in Israel, I'm remembering these places. I'm remembering Mount Carmel. When we went to Mount Carmel, and they explained that this is where Elijah met with the prophets of Baal. In fact, it's so beloved by the Jewish people, they have a huge statue of Elijah, I should, have, I should have had a picture of it, Elijah with a sword in his hand and a prophet of Baal under his foot. <laughs> and we were at that spot, and um, you remember the prophets of Baal? He said, go ahead. You know, Baal, he's supposed to be a, a, a god of the elements, fire. Let him bring this sacrifice and put this sacrifice on fire. And all day long, they're cutting themselves. They're, they're saying all of these different uh, mantras and nothing. And he's making fun of them. He's saying, well, maybe he's sleeping. Or, and there's even one where in the Hebrew, you might translate it, well, maybe he went to the bathroom and he'll be back. And then it came time. And he remember, he poured water on it. And then he prayed to Yahweh, the God of heaven, and it burst into fire. And then he said to the people, get those prophets and kill them. And so they did. Anyway, that's one of the reasons and the things that are there. And, and, uh, but, but here's what I want to leave you with tonight. And I don't want to discourage anyone, and I want you to hear me out to the very end. There's no guarantee of a spiritual heritage that can be passed on. We saw that in the book of Kings, and we see that from time to time in our own experience. So we see things like that. Only a few of the 40 kings, 20 from each kingdom, pleased the Lord and obeyed his word. 
any hope of a righteous heritage heavily darkened the entire history of the kings. Nevertheless, a perfectly righteous king would arise from Judah. He would not only fulfill the Davidic covenant, not only bring back Israel at his second coming, but would change all who believe from captives of sin to servants of righteousness. Now, I'm going to talk about a spiritual heritage, but first of all, it begins with us. Don't worry about a heritage if you're not living the life you ought to live. Take care of your own spiritual life. And I think we can get something here. We must do everything we can, as the scripture tells us, to put off the old man and to put on the new man. God has done this positionally, and we're to act upon it by faith and do it conditionally. And so when you go to the book of Galatians and you see the deeds of the flesh, those are the things of the sinful nature, as if we had to be told. And you have to put those off. No. By the grace of God, no. But by the grace of God, and you're thinking of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, you're putting these things on. In fact, I love it in Romans, it says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the clothing we're to put on. And, and the Lord makes that possible when we believed on him. And now let's continue to do that. And when our lives are what they ought to be, and our, even our ministry to others is what it ought to be, we will see an influence in the heritage. Do our best to to pass on a spiritual heritage. And I know I, we think of the scriptures in Proverbs, and I think it's a truism. You know, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I, I, I believe that that is the way God intended. It just doesn't always work out that way. That's why it's called a truism and not a prophecy. Okay. But we must do our utmost to pass on our spiritual heritage through prayer. And we saw some of the kings do that. Sometimes it helped and sometimes it didn't. But we must do our utmost to pass it on through prayer. Talk to God before we talk to others about God. And then share the gospel. That's the only, way. That's the only hope. If we learn anything from these kings, these kings um, were carnal. Um, they... They didn't have the spirit. Um, they were only externally connected to Yahweh because they were Jewish. Well, that doesn't work. That's why he promised them there was a day coming when everyone will know the Lord. And I believe that was a promise to Israel. That's when they would come and believe on Christ. They'd receive the Holy Spirit. We must share the gospel and then we must live that example consistently and like the new clothes that Jehoiachin put on, we must put on Christ consistently in order to fellowship with our king daily and to live in the daily allowance of our king's heavenly blessings. I'm going to quit there, and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this great, great book. They're all good, Lord, because... They are written and inspired by you. We just ask, Lord, that we will not soon forget the lessons that we've learned. Father, we, we pray that uh, we, we really need to, to 
on ourselves be keen for you, to follow you closely, to pursue you, uh, Father, and then, and then, Father, to, to, to uh, minister to others and influence others, especially our own families, our own heritage, uh, our neighbors, all those we come in contact with. But, Father, we, we, we pray, too, that, that we would also remember the hope that's in Christ, that though Israel and Judah got what they deserved, they also received mercy, which they didn't deserve, which we don't deserve, but because of your grace, we have it, and they will have it. And we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.